now we are recording. Welcome to Ladybeard, uh, Cat Miller's journey onto uh, discovering stuff about herself and stuff about indie culture, especially defining um, what indie gaming really is. And this week's guest is Darren Watts. And as I was, uh, I, I've been talking to you before we started recording with, I don't even remember the first time I've met you. Um, I was thinking about it. I know you from the fact both of us work at uh, the Double Exposure. At the Double Exposure Con, sure. And hello, everybody. And uh, I, I know that you do non-indie game stuff because you're not part of my staff because the staff has only been me and Michael for like ever. Uh, but uh, I know that you um, uh, you own Hero Games and it's under uh, the well, DOD. No, that's, that's not true. I am not in fact an owner anymore. I used to own Hero okay, Games. Okay, you used to own Hero Games. Right. Um, so, uh, well then, yes, tell me about yourself because I, I need a formal education. <laughs> okay, sure, no problem. Uh, but I used to, the uh, Hero Games was how I got into the business full time. Before I uh, purchased Hero Games uh, back in 2001, um, I worked in traditional publishing. Um, I worked for Publishers Group West and Chronicle Books and a few other regular book publishers. Um, and as a side hobby, uh, I wrote game reviews, and I did some little pieces for Steve Jackson. I wrote for Pyramid Magazine back when it was actually still a physical magazine. Uh, you know, I did just little bits. I was kind of at the periphery of the uh, of the industry. Um, we, there were some magazines back in the day, back in the 90s, that I worked with. Um, and uh, Hero Games had kind of lain fallow for a few years. Uh, Cyber Games had purchased it. And had not been able to really get any kind of like product put out for it. And uh, the opportunity came up to acquire it because I was a fan and I knew several of the creators that I had met at conventions and that sort of thing. Um, and so we bought Hero Games outright and the first product that we put out was the fifth edition rule set, which was kind of a surprise smash hit and we sold a whole bunch of them in the first you know quarter after the after actually getting that out uh and suddenly realized that we were full-time game people now <laughs> you know it, it became a full-time job kind of unexpectedly um and so we owned hero games uh myself and steve long and a couple of other people uh, jason walters was one of them um for uh, 11 years uh put out over 100 products um, along the way, we started DOJ Logistics, which is a, a shipping and warehousing company that uh, handles game uh, fulfillment, game order fulfillment for a number of different companies. And we bought Indie Press Revolution away from uh, its owner, which was Brendan Taylor at the time, because we were their uh, primary warehouse and fulfillment company, and we understood their business. So when Brendan decided to get out of the actually shipping books to people business, he sold it to us because we already were doing that job for him. Um, and then I got out of the uh, owning things side of the business a few years ago. Um, I left Hero Games, though I still continue to work for them uh, freelance, and I've done several projects. I still own a license to be able to kind of self-publish my own stuff using the system. Um, but I've taken on a bunch of other different freelance jobs that I couldn't do while I was working full-time for Hero. 
so since then I've worked for Star Trek, I've worked for Doctor Who, uh, currently working for um, Greater Than Games on the Sentinel RPG, um, and, you know, self-publishing and working with a bunch of different people, which is, like I said, I'm not, I, 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 just, I tried owning things for, you know, a decade or so and decided it wasn't really for me. I'm much happier as a freelancer, so. Well, that's, that's good, because you really need to, in, uh, in my perspective, in the indie business, you kind of need to follow your passion about it. Sure. So, I mean, if you're... And it, as it turned out, I mean, I, you know, it's what part of what I brought to the company in the first place was I knew how books got made, right? right? I, I'd done print buys. I knew how to deal with printers. I knew the kind of that process. Um, and so that was kind of the side of it that I wound up being in more than I wanted to. Um, and after 10 years, I was like, you know what, I'm just really not that into dealing with distribution, dealing with printers, dealing with warehouses, dealing with, you know, like all of that stuff. Um, I would much rather just make games or, you know, like, the you know, support material for games and that kind of thing. That's, that's just more what I'm good at, you know? Um, and fortunately there were other people who were willing to take that over from me and I was able to, you know, kind of like walk away relatively unscathed <laughs> you know, from, the, uh, oh, yeah. uh, from the process and now I get to work with a bunch of you know like fabulous interesting people you know I mean owning owning hero was great it was great to be in charge uh you know or co-in charge with my fellow owners kind of thing um now I have to now I work for other people and I do you know designs and stuff for other people for things that I will never own um on the side right I mean it's you know Right. Uh, that's nothing I do for Star Trek or nothing I do for Doctor Who is going to be anything that I own. But I also get to do, uh, you know, side pieces and self-publish other stuff. I've worked for, I have a company called Silverback Press, which is stuff that I self-publish, and I work with a bunch of other indie, uh, you know, publishers basically, usually as a freelancer. So, um, the Silverback Press, um, is that uh, you publish your, um. Or is that game stuff or just um, yeah. writing stuff? Or yes. Off? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did, for example, we did the Champions live action game through Silverback Press, um, where once again, where I was carrying a license from the stuff that I owned uh, for uh, from Hero Games. Um, I still have a license to use that material, so I have uh, you know published a few things through Silverback on my own. Oh, sweet. Um, that's also the name that I do freelance work under as well. So, yeah. Uh, is there a, a link or something for that that we can uh, add uh, to the website? Not, not currently, no. <laughs> well, in the, in uh, the so future. The site is currently down. Uh, we haven't had a product out in a couple of years because I have been so tied up working for other people that I haven't done anything here recently uh, through Silverback specifically, except as a freelancer. So oh, Okay, well. Um, the... The, I gave you a bunch of questions. One of the first sure. questions that uh, that I have written down is, uh, "What is your fondest memory playing games from um, from your childhood? You know, just from, from my childhood." Well, actually, no. Uh, uh, sure. For what is your fondest memory playing games at all? Honestly, my fondest memories for it were the first times that I kind of. Uh, um, met up with it, it, it certainly would be playing at conventions back on the west coast i used to live in the san francisco bay area oh. and uh the shows out there like dundercon and kublacon and that sort of thing 
were a great place to get started uh, kind of like making connections in the industry and that kind of thing. And some of my fondest memories out there are playing RPGs, playing games like Champions, which I, you know, wound up eventually buying. But before I bought it, uh, you know, I would play these games and, uh, you know, we did these appazines with, uh, uh, with other fans. There was a very strong fan base in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we would just play these endless hours of these incredibly complex, you know, superhero stories. And, you know, Hero was our go-to system for anything. So we would play pulp, we would play science fiction, we'd play horror, and we'd run it all through Hero. Um, and, you know, I had a I had a wonderful group of regular players at the time. And most of that stuff is what wound up being in... The champions universe once we finally once we were in control of it right like was you know right. so much of that history that we created for the champions universe came out of those kind of like grand old days in the early 90s or whatever like just playing um you know in in our in my apartment or playing at cons and and we would have all of these people from hero games from the you know previous ownership or whatever for it would just drop in on our games. That's where I first met Steve Long and we became friends. That's where I met Jason for the first time and a bunch of other uh, people who went on to be, you know, uh, connected or, you know, to work in the industry on some level for a while. So it was a, it was a very kind of fertile area for game designers. So That must have been really exciting to play with, with the people who would, I mean, at that point, you know, you're, you're playing the hero system and here are the people that, that have made it and, and right, yeah. they're hanging out with you guys. <laughs> exactly. Steve Peterson, Bruce Harlick, uh, George McDonald, you know, Ray Greer all became dear friends of mine and were, you know, very supportive of me getting into the industry, you know, actually doing this for a job, uh, you know, when that opportunity finally came along. But I didn't get to do that. You know, I wasn't in a place to actually do that until I was in my 30s at the very least. So I spent my teens and 20s, uh, you know, just kind of like hanging around the edges and, uh, you know, soaking it in like a sponge. These people <laughs> yeah, well, it, it never seemed plausible as a place that I could actually make a living, right? right. It was not, uh, you know. And and even when we took over the company, it, we still thought it was going to be a, you know, lark, fun, happy thing that we would do on the side, you know, to kind of like this game that we had loved that nobody had published anything for for a while to kind of like bring it back to life. That was the fun part, right? We didn't expect to make any money doing it. And then fifth edition was, you know, kind of a surprise hit. Then we had no infrastructure to actually deal with having a hit game, right? I mean, we sold, you know, 25,000 copies very quickly. And <laughs> we, you know, suddenly kind of all looked at each other and like, um, so are we all in on actually doing this? Is this what, you know, this, this is what we're going to do now? We're going to, you know, stop doing our other jobs and actually do this for, you know. Um, and so we did, <laughs> you know. So was that what got you into uh, being a game designer? Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I mean, I've you know been a I, I've written for other stuff. Um, my first published uh, work at all were GURPS, uh, you know, pieces for for Steve Jackson, right? I mean, it's, I had I had done that, but it, it was certainly what turned me into being a game designer as a professional, as somebody taking it, you know, like seriously and, uh, and looking to actually kind of, you know, make some level of a living off of it. Um, I, like I said, I didn't expect to do that until I suddenly wound up owning a company with a hit product. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, what does indie mean to you in the tabletop RPG sense? And what is not indie? <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Well, this this is where the the rubber hits the road, right? There's, there are a bunch of definitions, and I'm willing to use any of them. I just my problem is that uh, we have there's a lot of uh, you know friction and conflict comes around the fact that people use different uh, definitions for it and don't necessarily realize when they're having a conversation that they have those definite those those different definitions in their heads, right? Right. As an old timey punk, for me, indie is that you are, you know, that that, that you're doing it yourself. Right. Right. That it's a it specifically means, you know, it's like it, it, it's a you know DIY, right? As a philosophy, it's if you are the, the person out there doing this, putting everything on the line, putting your uh, you know production, and then owning everything that you do uh, for this, then by definition, you're indie. It doesn't matter what the art is that you create. It doesn't matter what the product is that you create. If you are the people out there on the line, if there is no kind of you know corporate master above you or that sort of thing for it, then you're indie. The same way that you're you know indie music. If you're self-publishing your own, you know, putting out your own records, or if you're you know you're you're an indie filmmaker. If you're you know not connected to like a major studio or something like that, right? Like if you're the if you're the person. Or you're the group of people because there's certainly you know plenty of things that you know one person can do themselves. Um, but if you the, the the people working on this all have an ownership stake in what is you know actually being produced, for me that's indie, right? That's the that's the definition. Right. Um, and within the game industry, honestly, that's the vast majority of us, right? I mean, as far as companies go, right. Um, most of them actually do operate on that level, right? Um, the question then becomes, okay, well, if you start working, if you reach a point where you're working with other people who do not have an ownership stake for this, if you're working with somebody like me today, uh, you know, if you hired me as a freelancer to come work for you, does that mean that you are still indie? Um, and that becomes, you know, like an interesting question. Pardon me. Um because for a lot of people, the idea of indie assume, you know, kind of like uh, has the context of, well, we're poor, it's not full time, we're working out of our living rooms or whatever, we're keeping all our product in the garage, right? That still feels indie, but the actual business model doesn't kind of like match that definition, right? If, there's, if there are people who are doing the creative work, uh, on your product and they're freelancers right uh, and they have just come in and they get a you know straight you know bundle of cash for the work that they do and that's it they don't own anything for it going forward technically by that first definition that's not indie no matter how otherwise you may actually kind of like fit into the community that calls itself indie right right and that becomes like a question that that becomes like a point of friction of discussion of it right if it's like if you don't if you're working with people who don't own what it is that they've done, you're not indie, right? right? That's just not, and that's not a bad thing. You know, there's plenty of companies that be perfectly good companies. Indie is indie or not indie should not be a pejorative term one way or the other. Right. But because indie gets used for so many other things in the game industry, on top of that, you have kind of the third level of that, which is because so many story game publishers, are indie for this they have kind of conflated those two definitions together yes right so that if the actual product that you're putting out is not 
something that the community, uh, you know, kind of like recognizes as like their stuff. If you're not a story game RPG designer, are you still indie if you're turning out trad games, right? Right. Um, and that was always kind of like the breakdown, the indie press revolution uh, as, a, as an operation, as a, as a program. Um, always kind of like struggled with that definition. One of the things we wanted to do when we acquired it was all of the things that IPR had been built to do for small publishers or whether or not they met that first definition of indie or, you know, was it what it actually meant to do was to solve a distribution problem for small companies. Right. right. So it should have been called small press revolution, not indie press revolution, because then you start getting into those kind of like technical definition issues. And you also get into that kind of like community of, well, is this really an IPR game? Doesn't it seem weird to have this on the same page, you know, in the same store, in the same, you know, sales, uh, you know, collective that all of these story game designers are in and are working together. And there would be people kind of like on the fringes of that who weren't doing story games, who felt kind of ostracized, who felt kind of like left out because they weren't part of that community and didn't understand why they weren't getting that kind of like community feel that IPR at its best had for the people that were, that were and are still part of that collective. So. Yeah. That is a, that's actually where we, we get into the gatekeeping question. Sure. Um, uh, I have the question here is, have you ever felt indie, not indie enough? And this is where I wanted to um, apologize to you because uh, a lot earlier when, when we were working together at Dexcon, um, I, I believe that uh, there was a conversation about whether or not Champions was uh, indie. And, uh, First of all, yeah, no apology is necessary for it, but that's the, that was exactly the kind of, like, definitional, well, well, what do you mean by indie, you know? Right. I mean, Hero, Hero Games, Champions at that point, was owned, you know, like, wholly by five people, right. all of whom had an ownership stake, and, the, you know, were, three of whom were in the production of the, of the thing, but five owned an ownership piece of it, and that was, you know, like the company. But on the other hand, Hero worked with freelancers, right? right? That's, the artists didn't own a piece of what they were doing. They were paid for their art and, you know, and... But that uh, also uh, is a, uh, a lot of, of indie um, RPGs also hire artists for their sure, work, right. right? So they do hire freelancers who don't own the... So it's still indie, though, right? Well, that's the question. Once again, you can define indie however you want to. Right. The, the point is, when you start a conversation where that sort of definition matters, right. for it, the first thing everybody has to do is agree on what they're talking about, right? Do we mean indie specifically the ownership issue? Do we mean indie the size issue? Do we mean indie the artistic output issue? Right. You know, like all of these things, that's, these, these can be at cross purposes to each other, and there's nothing wrong with using the term. The problem is that nobody has a, or, you know, no, frequently two people do not have the same definition and then they start talking past each other. Right. Right. The reason I feel so like I need to give. So you start the discussion that way by saying, by indie, I mean this. Right. Right. So yeah. And, and the reason that I feel like I need to give you an apology for it is because at the time and still, 
um, with my husband, we had been representing the Indie Games Explosions, sort of the um, head of um, the the Indie Games things that were going on at Dexcon. Uh, right. And by not even uh, looking up what, uh, you know, how uh, champions um, started out or uh, not knowing enough about you at the time for me to have just said, oh, no, that's not Indie, was kind of both lazy and um and also i was wrong um yeah well once again by that definition right i mean that's right. A, the, it was just kind of like a question of hey should i be submitting the games that we're putting on there and the response was you know well if it's champions is an indie you know right and you know at the time champions you know it's been around for 25 years it's like well you know if, if you're going by the definition of well indie is something like new and small right I well, was going we're by not new, and we're not that small by game industry standards because we have you know seven employees at our company. We're small by the rest of the world standards by you know uh, for for what a company size should be. But within the game industry, seven people is a lot, right? It's, yeah. you know? So if, if if the question was you know are are we too big to be part of it, right? Well, you know that that's that's a defendable choice i mean i was disappointed because i think the ig was a cool thing and i wanted to be part of it exactly but at least that would be a thing that i understood of saying sorry you guys are too big you don't get the benefit of this um the gatekeeping part of it though uh is something as uh um as somebody who has the authority to say oh okay because again uh being um indie games explosion i i get to set what games go on our uh, roster, what, what games are going to be, you know, on the event. Um, so it, it's really important for me to actually have a clear defense definition of what is indie and have it be consistent. Right. Yes. But that also is, is a responsibility of myself and everybody else who's going to start, um, you know, gatekeeping what indie is to be educated, to know if you if you have a, a clear definition in mind, then you better make sure that you know whether or not something in front of you meets that definition before you start saying whether it is or, or passing judgment. Sure. And uh, and and once again, you know, like that's I I don't mean to you know kind of like uh, uh, assign anybody uh, you know kind of like a, a bad intentions right on doing so. Right. But it is certainly the case. I feel the the story game community, for example, using that definition of it, um, the story game community has invested a lot of time, a lot of effort by a lot of like you know amazing people into building a community that, for the most part, is a very friendly, welcoming community that provides a lot of support uh, to new designers, to new publishers, and that sort of thing. Except that. It concentrates, obviously, as you know, one would think from the from the title that I just gave it, on story games, right? Right. And if what you do has too much of a, like a whiff of trad RPG, uh, you know, kind of trappings to it, right? If you've got a game uh, that has a lot of you know crunchy dice and gear lists and that sort of thing for this, and does not have some sort of or does not feature prominently. Uh, you know, kind of like the passing of narrative control and has, you know, different ideas about immersiveness, you know, immersion in the character, uh, uh, you know, at the table, and therefore doesn't kind of like meet the definition of story games as currently defined, then 
you can't then, then it's it's sad to be left out of that community right that, that community suddenly is not there for you right um and that that's a level of gatekeeping that i find kind of unfortunate because the not least of which because the trad rpg community is much less well organized right? right all the people who work on games like hero or GURPS or savage worlds or you know like whatever the games that have that kind of still have that definition of being a trad rpg and god forbid of course you know the big one D and pathfinder and that sort of thing for it those designers are not part of the story game community no matter how much they may admire what story gaming has done and wants to be part of it and want to share in that community there is frequently kind of like a level of even unconscious gatekeeping Right. Uh, well, that's you. You can't. You're, this, 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 this. You know, this table in the cafeteria is only for story gamers, kind of thing, right? It's there's a there's a level at which we, you know, can't sit with us. Um, that that is part of this. That's, I, I think I, I told you this that one of the very first podcasts I was ever on, the very earliest days of podcasts for it, was with Clyde Rower, and he began the podcast by saying, uh, "You know, this is great. You're the first non-indie designer I've ever had on here, right?" And I was outraged. I was like, what makes me not indie? I'm just as punk as you guys are, you know, kind of thing for this. And I got all wound up and upset. And of course, he's just like, click, turns on the recorder just as I'm getting mad. Right? Yeah. yeah. So the first 15 minutes of the podcast is just me complaining to him about like, you know, what do you mean? Uh, how am I not indie, right? You know, for it, because he definitely felt that I was doing something different from what the people that he ordinarily worked with were right. And like the, the fact that we were both small companies that, you know, hero was had five or six employees or whatever for it, right. you know, and was doing what were considered trad games for this meant that I was at best a distant cousin to the sort of designers and stuff that he was having on and talking to regularly at the time, you right. know, and I was outraged. What do you mean? We're different. You know, like how am I, how, how are we different? And then of course, we started having that discussion of, well, by indie, I mean story game, right? Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was 15 years ago, right? And here we are 15 years later, and we're still talking about this on podcast, right? This is not a problem. To the extent that it's a problem, it's not a problem that we've solved, right? So. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting to me in that um, um, I have, uh, I go to therapy, right? And I have learned over uh, this last couple of years how important words are. And I I was never um, a person to uh, really stand on um, literal words where context matters a lot more to me. So if I I can kind of understand what you're saying, um, part of that becomes – comes from the fact that – my mom is dyslexic, my sisters and my brother are dyslexic, I'm the only non-dyslexic one, right. and uh, therefore, often, the words they're saying are not the words they meant. Sure, yes. So, I kind of grew up uh, translating a lot, and right, yeah. understanding context, so, you know, again, I'm like, I don't really take words very very literally it gets me very annoyed if i have to specifically pick out each that's and every an awesome word. skill to develop as a kid though that must have been tremendously useful in other situations oh yes it was definitely it is very good right but uh 
but now I'm learning um, with uh, with depression issues how specific words um, create different chemicals in your brain, right? Right. Because yes. they're they they're they're chemically tagged positive or negative, and so different um, different words do different things. So I'm like, wow, words are very very powerful. The more I start to start thinking about um, just how powerful words are, and then looking back into um, what is the definition of an indie game? Um, those those definitions of like breaking something down into saying it's an indie game, but it's an indie story game, and it's an indie game, but it's an indie trad game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making indie sure, games. Sure, and, and those are just that's just within RPGs, right? right? I mean, like you know, we when when we were talking with IP, when we were you know taking over IPR, what one of the things that we had wanted to do with it early on was there needs to be an indie, there needs to be an IPR for indie card games and yeah. indie board games and indie minis games and indie whatever, right? I mean, like the the same from, from our perspective, what we meant by indie covered, you know, everything, right? right? Like it covered everything that had games attached to it at all, you know? Um, and there unfortunately does not frequently seem to be much connection between uh you know like small two-person card game publishers kind of thing and small two-person or one-person story game publishers or one-person trad rpg publishers or whatever right like that there 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 is a potential for a community kind of like crossover because in most ways as far as running a business managing a business of whatever size those people have 80% 80% of the same problems that you do, right? right? And 80% of the same, uh, you know, kind of like community concerns that you do. They're just making a different game, right? Right. But that's everything about making a game at all they have in common with you and could share experiences and could be helpful to each other and, you know, like provide, not have to reinvent the wheel over and over again because people don't talk to each other about how they solve these problems, right? Like IPR was created to solve distribution problems and it's done very well at doing that for one small portion of all of the people described by the title of its company. Right. You know, and it could do more. So it could do more. Right. Well, you know, it's, I, I, I don't mean to be critical of the, you know, current management of it or anything for it because it's the, you know, clearly that's uh, that they have, you know, kind of like chosen their niche and are working in their niche for this, but uh, you know, I, I find conversations with you to be extremely inspiring. No, that's very sweet. Uh, well, the the whole reason I'm doing the podcast is because of having a, a conversation with you at Gen Con this year, where we were discussing um, indie things, and and I realized that uh, I didn't have a very, I mean, I knew what I meant by indie, but I no longer was sure what somebody else meant by indie. Right. 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 And the people who speak to me, um, you know, the speak, the people that I trust or play with regularly, we all have a common term when we say it, we mean the same thing. But then if you go to a different con or you meet other people that you know on the internet and then you say the same word, it means something different. I should really, because again, because I'm, I'm doing the, uh, indie games explosions a couple of times a year, have a clear definition that I can post somewhere so that when yeah. I'm referring to it, um, people know exactly what I'm saying. Um, so, 
sorry, my neighbors are driving around. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, okay, absolutely. And, but, yeah, and it's certainly not just you, right? I mean, it's a, it's every convention that advertises having an indie game track or that sort of thing for this. I mean, all of those things, you know. And it's every publisher that's trying to get their products out into the hands of people who will appreciate and, you know, want to own their games and are struggling with traditional distribution because in that case specifically, indie to the most for the most part means size, right? They don't care either about kind of like the art uh, of the game or the ownership uh, definitions, right? They care about the are you putting out enough product? Are can we potentially sell enough of this product? to make it worth our time to pay attention to you. Yeah. And if that's not the case, then you've got to find another way to get your games into the hands of, of other people, right? If you are a traditional indie publisher and you have a smash hit game, if you are, you know, Bully Pulpit or you're, uh, you know, Evil Hat or something like that, right? And you put out the Dresden Files or Fiasco or whatever, the, you know, distribution will knock down doors to get to you to get that product out because you know, they, they can sell it. They can make money off of this. This right. makes sense to them as a product, right? Did did they become not indie the day they had, you know, like a top 10 game for that? That was always, you know, kind of like the question, right? right. Is, 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 is it too big not to indie be indie anymore? Is it right. too big to be indie? What, what, what point does it become? about what they're doing, a, you know. At what point does it become mainstream? Right, yeah. Right, yeah. and once again, that's the, they're using one of the possible definitions of indie, which is that we're big enough for distribution to, you know, to work with us. Right. Right. So indie, you know, clearly in that case has a definition that has, is on some, from the, from the distributor's point of view, from the retailer's point of view, they have a definition about indie that's got nothing to do with either ownership of product or the kind of art, the style of art that the, you know, game is, is generating. All they care about is the potential sales. Right. of that product, right? I mean, that's, I'm sure they care about it. I don't mean to suggest that retailers and distributors don't care about the quality of the product, but, you know, it's when, when they are making that definition of where can I go to find this product, right. or they're making that definition based on a, you know, sales potential uh, question for it. And, you know, I am sure, and I've, I've talked to people like, you know, Steve Segati and Fred and uh, Fred Hicks and people like that for it, about that very question about, you know, is it possible to, you know, sell your way out of being indie, oh. right? And both of them were part of IPR. Both of them, I believe, still are on some level part of IPR for it. And, you know, while I would, while we were managing IPR, we would point to them for smaller publishers and be like, this is what success looks like, right? This right. is This is the model that you should hopefully follow because they're being really smart and they're doing this, you know, kind of like the right way. And they're both very transparent about how their companies work and that kind of thing. They can serve as a model for a kind of success that you as a smaller indie publisher might strive for, right? You can learn a lot from watching them go through this. And so, you know, even if they diminished the amount of work at the amount of product that they were moving through IPR as they became more successful, we were still proud of them, right? Because we could kind of point to them and say, this is what it looks like when it works, right? We helped them get there, right? you know, to be in that, in that, in that spot. And we can help you too, right? If you want to, if this is the goal and plenty of people, that's not the goal, right? Plenty of designers just want to make their game or their couple of games and they want to sell them, you know, just on small numbers. They want to sell them directly to fans and that kind of thing. 
and don't want to give up their day jobs and don't want to, you know, like get into the level of work that's required right. to be evil hat, to be, the, you know, bully pulpit, that kind of thing. That's an enormous amount of work and it's, you know, they may not want that. And that's fine. That's okay. You know, that's that nobody's getting, you know, nobody's getting treated worse or treated differently because they are not trying to be a smash success, right? Ideally. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Pause. No, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just taking a breath. I'm doing a lot of talking here. So. <laughs> um, you're working on some new stuff. You have I a, am. A, a, a new Kickstarter coming up. I do, yes. Uh, sometime at the around the end of October or so, I am doing a Savage Worlds game. And this is another kind of like interesting one to point at of, okay, you know, like where does this fall on that, you know, indie spectrum? Um, the game will be published by uh, Battlefield Press, which is a, you know, one person company. Um, they, the ownership of the product will be shared between myself, my co writer, and the owner of Battlefield Press, we will all share the copyright and that sort of thing for this, so we will be owners of the, the item going forward. All three of us have the right to make additional product in this setting that we are creating together. Um, but we are using freelancers for art and for uh, stretch goals for the Kickstarter, so they will not, in fact, actually own anything for it. They will just be paid you know, cash for their contributions. Um, and we are doing so using a system that we are have a license with from a much larger company. Now, whether or not uh, Pinnacle is an indie company is, you know, a, a completely separate discussion, but we are, we don't own outright the rule set that we're using, right? Like Pinnacle has license, has a licensing program to go through so that we can make Savage Worlds, uh, you know, compatible yeah. products as a third-party publisher for that. So, is this an indie product? But there's five different ways to answer that, you know, right. depending on which definition that you're using. But yes, to talk about the actual product, uh, what we are, what we're doing is uh, Jess Nevins and I are writing a Savage Worlds setting. It's called Explorers of the Fantastic, and like I said, we'll kickstart at the end of the at the end of October, uh, and it is a. 50s, it's a, it's a Cold War. It's the 1950s and 60s. Uh, if the Cold War had happened about giant monsters instead of nukes. Um, the third bomb that we dropped on Japan in World War II woke up the giant monsters, and so there are kaiju raging around the world. Uh, and uh, the, both the kind of, you know, the post-war, both the Allies and the Communists uh, have kind of, you know, like set up organizations and operations to defend ourselves from the giant monsters and have, you know, uh, work to not just to like kill them, basically, though sometimes we have to do that, but also to capture them and study them and understand how they work. And so here are these tremendous leaps forward in scientific achievement based on the new physics that we have learned from giant monsters, right? The fact that like these, you know, enormous creatures exist and can walk around means we clearly had the square cube law wrong, right? That's out the window, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so, you know, how exactly do they function? How do they, you know, how, how do they generate atomic energy to shoot out of their eyeballs and that kind of thing, right? Like everything that we have learned about science from this, we are now uh, kind of, to a certain extent, weaponizing 
in the ongoing Cold War between us and the Soviet Union and Communist China. Um, so the players are, in fact, uh, you know, action scientists that you would find in like 50s and 60s, you know, atomic horror movies um, who, you know, drive around in our flying subs with our cool color-coded uh, matching jumpsuits and our ray guns and that kind of thing. Action uh, scientists. What's that? Action scientists sounds really cool. Right, exactly. That's the that's part, part of the premise of it, right? It's, it's, it, we're Johnny Quest, right? right. We're, we're the Super Marionation shows, right? Like Thunderbirds are Go and that kind of thing, right? Like we're just teams of awesome scientists in our cool toy, uh, you know, the vehicles or whatever, traveling around the world uh, trying to, you know, capture and study giant monsters. And also, incidentally, it's not just giant monsters because aliens are always invading and there's a hollow earth and, you know, there are tribes of talking gorillas in Africa and all kind of other stuff besides just giant monsters to actually kind of chase around in here. Um, and because we wanted the game to have such kind of like a high toy factor to it, right? Like this is a game about, on, on certain levels of it, it's a game about science and gadgets and technology and so we very much wanted it, it it's a game with a very kind of extended gear list right it's a game with lots of different kinds of guns and different kinds of vehicles and cool bases on the inside mountains or at the bottom of the ocean and that kind of thing and so we wanted a game that was crunchy enough that that mattered right like i didn't want a game the way it just said where to, to have it just be i just i don't want to be dismissive of it but i didn't want it to be a game where your gadgets were just, oh, I have pistol 1v6, right? Like, I wanted to have games where you could have a serious argument over whether our electro pistols or the Soviet electro pistols were better because yes. they had enough different stuff between them that you could, you know, like actually have an opinion on that. Um, and so, Savage Worlds was kind of like the choice, the, you know, for the system because it was crunchy enough to make that work while still has kind of like a very loose and flowing action at the table that you know like that that kid that plays fast that plays exciting and doesn't get kind of like too bogged down in details right so and it's the first time either jess or i have ever worked with savage worlds and we've been tremendously delighted with it so far we're having a ball actually writing this so oh excellent that sounds like it would be a blast to play too i hope so i mean we're, we're enjoying the playtest of it right now so that's uh as a as a game designer, it's always one of those dreading or exciting things playtesting. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. And we're at, like I am just at the point now, and where I'm not ready to hand this off to anybody yet. Right. So I'm not at I'm not at the playtest level where I'm like giving it to anybody else without one of me or Jess in the room, right? Um, and I'm dreading when that point comes. That's always kind of like a big part of playtesting is like the first time that you hand this off blindly to other players to, you know, see if they can figure it out yet. We're not, we're not quite there yet because I'm still, we're still messing with the details of it. So. Well, that, that's exciting. And, uh, that will be, and so, so when is your Kickstarter for that going to be? Is that's going to be? That's going to be at the end of October. We have not got a specific date for it yet, but that's the, the you know, we're, we're, we're still choosing the day for it. So. But I, ideally we will, hopefully it will run over the November cons, right? Like if we start at the end of October, it'll be running through Metatopia, it'll be running through the oh. other November cons. So oh, excellent. We can promote it there. Um, and when you do have a link for it, hopefully I will have by then learned 
how to put the links on the on on the page. Go to the Battlefield Press site right now, but the page for it there is not set up yet. So okay, so there's a there's some stuff to do at your end, some stuff to do at our end, but there's some good stuff coming out. Absolutely, Uh, and that's one of you know that's one of several uh, projects I have going on. That's the one that's kind of like the most active and interesting. If I can toss in a couple of other uh, plugs here for this, uh, my sure. card game, my first ever card game, uh, came out in uh, the end of May, beginning of June. It's called We Rate Dogs, and it's based on the uh, Twitter account. Uh, and that is, uh, so far, seems to be doing extremely well. The publisher, I have not gotten the final sales report for the first quarter yet, for it, but my publisher walking around with a big grin on his face. So uh, they all seem very happy about it. So uh, if you want to go check that out as well, that's at chroniclebooks.com. We rate or dogs. We rate, we rate dogs, uh, which is a Twitter account um, run by a lovely guy named Matt Nelson, who has a, an account where you send a picture of your dog uh, to Matt, and then he basically makes fun of it and <laughs> then uh, rates it. But he, because he loves all dogs, he rates them all more than 10 out of 10. <laughs> right? So it's always like 13 out of 10. I love this dog, or whatever kind of thing, after he like says something funny about it. So, uh, so this is a game with a bunch of cards of uh, dogs with, you know, like their, their ridiculous stats on them. And you uh, try to get your dog to have the highest ratings uh, by playing cards. That's what Wow, you have it that, is a very silly game. For sale at, on Amazon. That is on, yes, that is at Amazon. That's Chronicle Books. That's, a, that's in stores pretty much everywhere right now. So the great thing about Chronicle is that, you know, they as a book publisher, they're already in, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and everything for this. It's, you know, the thing they're still learning about games is how to get into Joe's game store, you know. Right. Uh, so I can teach them that, you know. <laughs> They've got the hard part down. You know? Right, they've got the part that other people want to learn how to do. Exactly, right, yeah. So so um, you said a couple of things. So was there something other than we uh, The other thing I'm working on right now is uh, there. The, if you're familiar with uh, the Sentinels of the Multiverse uh, card game, uh, we are making an RPG out of that. Greater Than Games is making a role-playing game out of that. And I am one of the people writing uh, some of the lore for that. Uh, it's a system that was designed by Ken Banks and Dave Chalker and Philippe Menard, along with the the, uh, the Greater Than Games management people, Christopher Bedell and uh, Adam Adicaro. Um And it's tremendously good. It kickstarted back in February, March, I think, and it made, like, I don't know, a quarter million dollars. So Yeah, it's a very um, popular game, so... It yeah, like a so world several of us are, 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 have been kind of called in to, uh, you know, like fill out all of the lore material and everything for this, all of the ridiculous amount of setting material. And uh, Christopher McLaughlin and I are doing uh, one of the books for it. And the, our, one of our things that we're doing for it is not just the history of the universe that the superheroes are in, but the history of the fake publisher of comics <laughs> who published all of the fake comics that these superheroes are in, right? Right. And so the last quarter of the book is uh, is a fake Overstreet price guide for collecting all of these comics that never existed. And that is also kind of like serves as like a reference piece for GMs and players to see like how the universe actually went historically before you, you know, before you bought the game, the world that you're taking over. But it's explained to you as though it were an Overstreet price guide. So that's uh, that's actually like so many levels of of. Deep and right, fun, exactly. right? It's a, 
It's an insane level of meta. It's a joke I actually stole from Ken Height. I can't actually like take full credit for it because the Adventures in the Darkness includes like a two-page take overstreet guide. And uh, I saw that joke and I was just like, ah, hold my beer. I'm going to make a 50-page, you know, take overstreet guide. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You think you did something with your two pages before this, so. Well, um, this has been this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. And, oh, not uh, at all. Have this, a lovely time. Um, this is, uh, yeah, I am Lady Beard again at, uh, um, and uh, this has been Darren Watts, and you can uh, look me up at, uh, um, on my Twitter account, uh, which is at Lady Beard. Uh, 17 because there are 17 other lady beards out there <laughs> wow okay um and uh i know i like i thought i'd be the only one right <laughs> right yeah well uh apparently the first lady beard is uh um a guy a man who dresses as a cheerleader um and does uh metal um music with um japanese baby metal oh okay um and sure why not right i've seen him before and oh again i'm like should i say them or him i've seen them before i think them is safest um but uh but they're awesome and uh so i don't mind being like 17th to that <laughs> i was going to say yeah right if, if all 16 of the others are that cool then are, sure why not right they're, they're all probably fans of number one <laughs> maybe um <clears throat> so yes uh this has been ladybeard and i will uh um get back with another interview in a couple of weeks uh and 